Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Mark Sackler. Mark spent 40 years changing directions, moving through media, journalism, marketing and sales roles until finally deciding to become a futurist. He is a fellow podcaster like us here at FuturePod. Check out SeekingDelphi.com to listen to Mark's conversations with his guests. Some of them you've already met through our podcasts and some are new. Mark is a generalist, futurist and an advocate for more foresight in society. And he encourages people not to hide from the future, but instead try to create the future they want. Welcome to FuturePod, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me, Peter. Always uh, happy to be on with a fellow futurist podcaster. Fantastic. Yeah, we're very thick on the ground, aren't we? <laughs> so, Mark, uh, we start our interviews with the guests telling their story of how they became a member of the Future and Foresight community. So what's the Mark Sackler story? Wow, how much time do you have? My story probably isn't typical, although there are a lot of different ones. I'm going to be 70 years old in a few weeks, although I only became a formally a professional futurist within the last, uh, since turning 65, uh, I've been interested in the future all my life. So what I think I'll do is, this will kind of be like a, a, a feature movie or the first episode of a binge-watchable long-form TV show, <laughs> whereby maybe up front you see, at the very beginning, you see a tense scene near the end, and then they stop and go back three weeks earlier, three months earlier, three years earlier to explain what happened. So uh, yes, I'm a member of the Association of Professional Futurists. I actually did this kind of as a retirement career to be an advocate for more and better foresight in society. And at 65, went back to school and got the graduate certificate in foresight from the University of Houston and was accepted and granted the appellation of, of APF from the Association of Professional Futurists. That's where I am right now, and the podcast tries to deal with various different issues about the future, uh, the domain, the various different domains from science to politics to social issues to education, and also to some extent about um, how we think about the future and try to illustrate that with some of the people I do. That's where I am now. So now let's let's go back, and instead of three weeks earlier or three months earlier or three years earlier. Let's go back 63 years because I can trace my roots to the interest in the future to something that was called the International Geophysical Year. You could, you could look it up. It, this was actually not a year, but about 18 months of international cooperation from the middle of 1957 to the end of 1958. So it started a couple of months before my seventh birthday and ended a couple of months after my eighth birthday. And why would I be aware of that? It might have gotten mentioned in first or second grade, whatever I was in at the time. But my father was an electrical engineer, and he was very interested in technology, in the space program, in science fiction, and got me interested in all those things. So he would talk to me about stuff that was going on. And of course, within that 18-month period, that's when Sputnik 
was launched toward the beginning of it. Later on, within those 18 months, the first American satellite was launched. So then I became enamored with the space program and going on into the 60s with the manned space program. I was the kind of kid my mother had to fight to get me up at 7 a.m. to go to school every morning. But if on a Saturday morning they were ready to launch the John Glenn or Gus Grissom or whoever into orbit, I'd be up at 5 or 5.30 in the morning <laughs> watching the proceedings on television. So uh, I grew up with that and uh, became very interested in thinking about the future and did that my entire life on and off. I want to jump forward, though, to the late 1990s with the internet, and I was becoming very enamored with how fast computer technology was advancing, microcomputer technology, how much more power you were getting for how much less money, Moore's Law, etc. And around that time, I discovered the World Future Society. And so I uh, went to uh, a couple of three meetings. That's where I met uh, the likes of uh, Peter Bishop and Andy Hines and found out about the University of Houston program and kind of have been lurking on and off in the the fringes of the, the serious professional future future society for all, all that time. Um, I, I published a book review in the journal Futures in 2001, was involved with a project with the uh, legislature of the state of Connecticut uh, to create a, a 21st century action plan committee, a kind of futures committee for the state of Connecticut. Unfortunately, it never really went anywhere. The, uh, the politicians, you know, one politician that I'd done work for created it as a favor, but it, then it never went anywhere because politicians didn't get it and they don't want to think beyond the next uh, election. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I dabbled on and off. And then finally, five years ago, when I was selling out uh, my partnership with three younger partners and sort of to re retire from a long time day job and trying to decide what to do with my life. I realized like a lot of my friends, I just couldn't retire to playing golf every day. I needed a mission, a purpose. And I had a lot of ideas about uh, selling foresight to a, a reluctant public and being an advocate <laughs> for it. And that's when I decided to finally do the Houston program, take the graduate certificate. and. What happened was, was that uh, as part of that, I got the, this notion that, you know, I used to be a broadcast journalist in my youth. I was originally trained in that. My undergraduate degree was speech with a mass communication specialty. And my second to last semester at Houston, I did a work study project. And the work study project was to create the podcast. And the technical issues I had to relearn because when I last did radio, it was all on reel-to-reel -reel tapes. Uh, I had to learn how to do the digital recording and editing and whatever, but the, the kind of the, the presentation skills, the journalist skills were still the same. So that um, got me going. And for me, as I said, whereas a lot of my colleagues as professional futurists, and while occasionally get called on maybe to, to consult on a project, I'm not so much doing formal futures practicing as I am doing this this advocacy and this foresight journalism, as I call it, and trying to slowly but surely spread it out there to a broader audience. As you know, it's it's not easy to build audience. There's about a million podcasts out there, but I, I'm getting up to the point where I have a, a few thousand uh, few thousand downloads a month. Anyway, maybe five thousand in a top month, and twenty three thousand followers for the Facebook page. So after three years of work, it's it's getting there, and uh, we all have to get there as futurists, and not just talk to ourselves, but talk to that broader public. So that's that's kind of my story, and I'm I'm sticking to it, Peter. 
Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. Uh, Stuart Candy did say to me in in his interview that you know what am I learning sitting on the other end of the microphone talking to so many people from around the world and yeah, the story about the things that excite us as young people, the connection of science fiction and literature to a whole lot of our people, the importance of a connection to the outside world is both an it's it almost strikes me that what happens is people have both an inner journey and an outer journey through their imagination that that appears to be a a pathway to get them interested in futures and then the things that happen in the outside world can also light that fire under people that they suddenly get interested <laughs> it's something i've just kept coming back to all my life it's that that um there are a lot of concerns and challenges, but there's a lot of opportunities as well and a lot of exciting things we, we can be doing if we point ourselves in the right direction. I agree. Thanks, Mark. So question two, the one where I encourage the guests to talk about a framework, a theory, a kind of a stance they take on the future that is central Facebook to followers. who they are as as futures people. So what do you Facebook want to talk followers. to the listeners about? Well, for me, of course, my tool is communication, obviously. Followers. And in, in communicating to a, a general public, I came to a realization. I'm having for the longest time thinking, I want to write a book for a general audience on how to think about the future. And I was having trouble getting my, myself around how to do this and how to, how to organize it. And then I had an epiphany, and it was actually in one of the, the last Houston class I took with um, Cindy Fruin, who I don't know if you've had her on here, but I know you're familiar with her. She's we had her on. We've had we've we've kind of been working our way through the chairs of the APF. We've had both Cindy and um, and Jay on. With her, this was in her class on social change, and at one point she talked about some problem saying maybe it's easier to define it by what it's not yeah. than what it is. And it suddenly occurred to me that, wow, that's an approach I could take to educating about foresight. And I did. I wound up doing a talk for a local uh, civic group here in the New Haven, Connecticut area uh, that really struck the chord and really worked. And what I did was is... I called the talk Horse Manure, The Three Deadly Sins of Bad Foresight, or How Not to Think About the Future. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give the whole 20-minute talk. I'll, I'll sum it up in four minutes here, the approach. But first of all, in terms of my philosophy, my philosophy is, you know, sometimes the blind squirrel finds a nut. And the blind squirrel that found a nut was that great American philosopher, Yogi Berra, who famously said the future ain't what it used to be. And, and we laugh and think, oh, Yogi had no idea what he was talking about. But in a way, he was literally correct mm -hmm. because there's only one past and only one present, but there's a multitude of uh, almost an infinite number of possible uh, futures. But what those possibilities are, are constantly changing as things unfold in the present. So, for example, all the possible futures we have now are totally different from what the po possible futures were before COVID came along. Yep. It's as simple as that. So in that respect, the, the, the future isn't what it used to be just a few months ago. For that matter, it isn't what it was 10 minutes ago because things happen that change what could happen in the future. So how do you, how do you deal with that? 
three mistakes that people make, uh, the first of which that I get the, the, the horse manure <laughs> title from, of course, is linear thinking. There's a tendency to think things are going to continue the way they always have in a straight line. And that, the famous story is the horse manure crisis of 1894, where it was predicted that the rate of growth by a third of the way into the 20th century that New York and London would both be, all their streets would be 30 feet deep in horse manure. Yep. And this was 1894, 10 years after the internal combustion engine had been invented. People couldn't see their, you know, their hands in, in front of their face for, for what that, that could do. I have a, um, in terms of linear thinking and not thinking of, of scenarios that could be different, I have a very good current example of that that happened right here in the U.S., and uh, so I don't know, you know, you've got global listeners and I don't know how much any of them, depending on they are, are familiar with baseball. But when COVID shut down the baseball season, the owners jumped right in and made this great negotiation with the players that, <laughs> okay, the players weren't crazy about it. They understood once the season resumed, it'd be a shortened season and they would get paid proportionately for exactly the number of games that are played. If they played half the season, they'd get half their pay. If they paid a third of the season, they get a third of the pay. And they said, okay, we'll do that. Then when they were faced with the actual thing, they said, they all of a sudden said the actual opening up of the season, they said, oh, wait a minute. We didn't consider the fact that there wouldn't be fans in the stands. And that's close to half our revenue. So we have to ask you to, to, to take an even bigger cut. And the players said, Oh no, you don't. We already, <laughs> we already gave you all this and we're not, we're not getting screwed a second time. And they literally, even in terms of three to four months ahead in thinking, didn't think of a scenario where they would reopen, but it would be under different circumstances than normal. So, so obviously linear thinking is a real problem. And, and the, the object to think and uh, the, the, the ability to think uh, of alternative uh, futures in alternative scenarios. The two others that I used in that talk, and, uh, and to some extent they're interrelated and they're subsets of them. One is foresight myopia, which is simply thinking too short term. And to some extent there's extremes of that, like complete denial of the future. George W. Bush at one point in his presidency said, we're not going to do five-year economic forecasts anymore because they're, they're always wrong. <laughs> so let's, let's you know, ignore the future and make believe it doesn't exist. Um, that's kind of, I sometimes call that the, the ostrich syndrome, hiding your head in the sand, where a futurist would have said, well, do scenarios for a few different scenarios, even if it's only low, medium, and high, and revise it every few months, because at least that way you're prepared for what might come along. So, so that's a, a, another, a, another issue. And of course, even with, with, with the story I just told you with baseball, there was just a future blindness. They just didn't see potential for different futures. So uh, in, in a way, they were, they were committing two sins. And then, of course, the third one that, that I use is foresight blinders. And that's looking too narrowly. And that's not seeing how things are connected across domains and how something way off to the side. Another great quote, favorite quote of mine from the comedian, Stephen Wright said, I see the future, but only way off to the side. I'm a peripheral visionary. <laughs> uh, we have to be peripheral visionaries, um, but we often have to see what's, what's right in front of us as well. 
and know how to connect them. And the example I used to that in terms of what I thought was wrong thinking about the future was in a book that came out three or four years ago by, uh, not three or four years ago, close to 20 years ago, called The End of Science by a former Scientific American writer who had argued all the big problems had been solved and it was all the minutia and nobody in the scientific community agrees with them. And that's, it's not important for us to argue that. But he did say that he thought applied science would go on for quite some time. And he made some various speculations of what he thought might be possible in different areas based on that. But he had them in silos. He didn't connect them. So on the one hand, he said, you know, in terms of biology, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point we can actually extend human life up to maybe 200 years. All right, that's fine. Um, I'm all for that. I am in the end, into the ending aging and transhumanist community. And we can talk a little more about that later. But then over in talking about space exploration, he said, well, I don't think it's going to be ever possible to transport anything particularly massive faster than 10% of the speed of light. Therefore, because it would take 40 years just to get to the nearest star, he didn't think humans will ever travel in interstellar space. Well, he hasn't read a lot of science fiction for sure. (laughs) A lot of people would argue with him about that 10% of the speed of light. And of course, there are many science fiction stories about intergenerational starships, which, you know, if people really wanted to get out or we had to for whatever ever ever reason because of uh, some cosmic calamity we would do let's put that aside yeah can you see how what he said about the length of a human life contradicts what he said about traveling to the stars it's one thing to say when we when our our, our total adult lifespan is maybe 50 60 years we don't want to spend 40 of it traveling to the stars to the nearest star. But if it's 200 years, all of a sudden, as a proportion of your total adult life, it's not much more than what the, what, you know, the whalers did in the 19th century when they signed up for three to five year voyages as part of their much shorter adult lifespan. So again, it's not seeing how things are connected. So yeah. I'm going to mention one thing that I think is uh, kind of an interesting little tool that I didn't get from the foresight community. And I've, I'm only now getting a couple of chances to use it. So I haven't seen how it works yet. But this is one I don't know if anyone has mentioned. I picked this up from Daniel Kahneman's book. He's the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist whose work uh, with a partner had to do with how people make decisions. And in the book, the book was called Thinking Fast and Slow. And this wasn't I don't remember who he cited. It wasn't his idea. It had come from somebody else in the business world. And he had cited it. This struck me as a phenomenal tool. It's something he called a pre-mortem. What is a pre-mortem? Well, basically what happens is you're about to embark on some major project with your in your life or your your organization, your company, your government, your school, your NGO, your your private life, whatever. The exercise is imagine it's 2 years from now and everything's gone horribly wrong. Discuss what went wrong and yeah. how it could have been avoided. So it's an object, I think it's seen as kind of a reality check. And I'm working on a couple of projects right now that need that reality check. And at at some point, if you want to check back with me, I'll tell you how it worked. But it's something I'm chomping at the bit to try out. I will say also just to add another thing is that I have two approaches, which people have talked about that I both like in terms of building scenarios. And of course, I'm sure you're familiar with both of them. But it, to me, it's interesting which one you choose depending on 
problem at hand. And one, of course, is the uh, the, the the two by two grid where it's an x y axis, and uh, the x y the x side represents one extreme, and the the y represents two extremes of another aspect of what you're looking at, and you construct four scenarios out of that. And then, of course, the other one, which is kind of a little, in a way, a little more intuitive, that's simply to look at various uh, levels of, of change from, you know, baseline, which is the current trajectory, transformation, which would be totally everything changes, a new equilibrium where you get a, a shift, like a paradigm shift, but it's uh, and then it kind of stabilizes. And of course, the one nobody wants to talk about and one that, uh, that the whole planet is facing right now, and that's that's collapse. So I, I think also to, for somebody who, who is maybe uninitiated to think of the world in those matters, it can, it can help with, um, with the notion of constructing scenarios. move on. Third question. How does Mark Sackler sense the emerging future around him? Boy, that's a, this is a tough time to ask that question, and it's a tough time to answer it. It's an exciting time as well. Well, I suppose, but it's, it's, it's also a very dangerous time. You know, I can tell you that being a futurist, and I've got friends, guys I played tennis with, relatives, whatever, and they say, you're a futurist, what's going to happen? And you've got to explain to them that we don't make firm and hard predictions. For me, when, when the whole COVID thing broke, I was losing sleep for a few nights because I was having a hard time hmm. thinking of any scenario that didn't end in, in disaster. The problem, of course, here in the US is we have, on top of COVID, is we have the, probably the most divisive political climate maybe since the Civil War. I mean, literally, it's going back 150 years. You you put those two together and it doesn't portend well. And I've been encouraged by the way uh, a lot of businesses and individuals have been able to adapt to what's going on with the pandemic. But honestly, as a person who's normally quite optimistic, I'm having trouble being optimistic right now, at least here in the States until we, we get past the election, which I see a very high probability uh, a variety of scenarios that result in in serious constitutional crisis and 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 likely violence, regardless of what the outcome is, and the outcome is likely to be disputed based on uh, what's going on here. So, uh, what I see is the long-term future right now, at least around me, very much disrupted by what happens in the next six months. Because while it's great to look long. At the long-term future, sometimes you got to get past the short-term future to get to the long-term future. You know, that's where 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 my issue is. Do we get a vaccine? We get a vaccine, and it's effective, and we can get it out to enough people. Then, then maybe within about a year, we can resume to a more normal life, assuming that the political disruption, again here in the states, and and in the, a lot of other countries are having issues around it too, isn't so disruptive that we still can't get back to anything looking like normal. So, yeah, from my viewpoint, is there are always ways we can make a better future, and there are always better. There, there are always good scenarios out there as well as bad ones. But the preponderance of bad ones right now is is is, is kind of scary. It's got me concerned and less optimistic than I normally am. I, I can tell you that much, Peter. Mm, yeah, the, I mean, one of the things that's been interesting 
has been the pressure that the uncertainty and breakdown of really of industrial society as we understood it post-war and the impact it's having on democratic structures. It seems that democratic decision-making processes are often paralysed when when things like growth start disappearing. And we are seeing the beginnings, you know, the rise of fundamentalism and a return to nationalistic politics that those, those of us who are historians would say sound much like previous century. Well, yeah, one of the things I, I wanted to observe, and I see it with what's going on here also, is, is that, again, what, what I was talking about is, is that uh, in terms of getting past the short-term future is I see people that have you know ideas that sound good, but if you could achieve them, they're going to take time and they're going to be so disruptive short-term. How do you deal with that? And that's um, that's an issue. I had a friend who was rather um, rather right-wing and anti-immigration, uh, and he's saying, "Well, I'm trying to explain that you know, the U.S. needs all these at least in technology. We're not creating enough scientists and engineers." And he says, "We need to." to cut out so many immigrants and have the Americans do the job. Well, you just can't snap your fingers and suddenly have all these hundreds of thousands or even millions of trained engineers and trained scientists. You know, even if you can find a successful way to motivate more people to go into those fields and train them, it takes years. And in the short term, companies still need those immigrants. So, you know, again, it's good to look to the long term future. And I can think of ideas that are, it's kind of the opposite of foresight myopia it's a it's farsightedness it's looking far in the future and not seeing the disruption right in front of you yeah getting people to to think more rationally about the future and make better decisions about it and more deeply about it is the solution i think but you know so far i don't know that we're as futurists we're having a lot of success doing that because i still see a lot of very very short-term orientation particularly in government but in, in other areas as well raise an interesting point that i I do talk to guests about, which is the the notion of where you find hope, because we do. I mean, we do as part of our occupational, again, Stuart Candy refers to this as our emotional burden. We take it upon ourselves to think of these things. We take upon ourselves to think of what can go wrong. But at the same time, there's a deeply personal process that goes on from when you from when you re- when you come back from that, because that's the other part of of our trade is not just to think of the bad things and think of the opportunities, but also to find hope. Well, it goes back to um, those bad those sins of bad foresight. Uh, the one central shortcoming in all of them is a the lack of an imag- of imagination. And I don't think I've ever been short of imagination. So I think for me, it, it's I can always imagine. A better future, and I try to. It's a matter of, and sometimes it's just this too will pass. But how can we proactively make it better? We have to think of those things to give ourselves hope. And then, of course, you know, a lot of the futurists that I talk to are pretty optimistic, or they have a lot of good scenarios, even as they realize that there could be bad ones out there too. David Wood of the London Futurists is a guy who has been on my podcast a few times. He wrote a book uh, on transhumanism that was very uplifting and positive about all the good things that could come from it. But he does warn in multiple places that if we, this is if we do things right and we could do things wrong. Of course, out there, there's, there's 
Peter Diamandis with his abundance view. So, so you know, things like that temper uh, the negativity. And I said, I'm not usually a pessimistic person. I tend toward optimism. And, and so it, the current situation is kind of an anomaly for, for me, as it is for everybody. So we, we find the solace where we can. And uh, I know I'm fortunate to be better off than a lot of people are in this crisis, but uh, also know that that can't continue. So we have to, all of us try to make it better. And uh, the fact that, that, you know, things that I see that were positive was how fast a lot of people did adjust to what's going on. And in fact, you know, shortages that were in the stores when we started, uh, now all of a sudden, um, not so much. Now we can get stuff delivered uh, very efficiently as opposed to having to go to the store if we don't want to be you know, subject to possibly being exposed to coronavirus. So you can see there are silver linings in the cloud. In my wife's field of veterinary medicine, the silver lining is that where people were sheltering at home, uh, they were adopting pets and all the pet shelters have emptied out. So all these animals that maybe eventually might have had to been euthanized if they didn't find homes have found homes. So there are, you know, every cloud does have silver linings, and there have been some of those in COVID as well. So you've got to, got to look for them. Thanks, Mark. Fourth question is, you've already touched on this, the communication question, the one I, uh, you've already talked about how you have found... Um, the horse manure story, a good way to talk to people about futures by what it's not. How do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what you do? Well, it's a question I get a lot. And, you know, one of my favorite stories in that regard, <laughs> before I fully answer the question, you know, when I was accepted to the Association of Professional Futurists, I put a post on Facebook that I said, I am now Mark Sackler, APF, I'm officially recognized as a professional futurist. And one of my connections with somebody that I was in my circle of friends in, in college who I haven't seen in 40 years, Facebook goes like that, and he puts up the, the snarky comment, okay, what's, what's tomorrow's winning lottery numbers? You know, I, I had an equally sharp answer for him. I said, I'm a futurist, not a psychic. <laughs> I think people, you know, a lot of people that they say, what is a futurist? Or they misdrew it as somebody who tries to precisely predict the future. If it isn't a mystical thing, like, you know, the the woman who was teaching at Hogwarts, who supposedly could see the future, but she was kind of a fraud. Uh, people who say they can absolutely see the future, yeah, they're kind of frauds in my book. As I said, there are many possible futures, and what futurists do is not try so much to predict the future, although frequently I've said, I think something like this is going to happen, and maybe something like that does. I don't know exactly when or where or how, what the implications are going to be. Sometimes that does happen, yeah, because we're looking ahead. But the purpose of being a futurist is to think more deeply about the future in a manner that will help make better choices for the future and help create a better future. The job of a futurist, if he's, if he's hired by an organization, is to make forecasts, not predictions, but forecasts or construct scenarios that will help uh, someone see the challenges and opportunities that might arise and think of 
ways that they, they might deal with them and, and maybe make better choices in the present so that they're in a better position to, to deal with the unknowns in the future. So it's nebulous, it's amorphous, and that's what makes it a little bit puzzling to people. But again, you can constantly see where the failure to use your imagination and think of alternative scenarios has, has really caused substantial problems. Uh, even in the even short term, like the, the example I gave with, with Major League Baseball. Okay, let's um, go to last question. Seeking Delphi, and you have a, a kind of interest in the future as well as the the craft of futures, the practice of futures, but you have many different topics and contexts that you that you talk about. Do you want to close with a topic or that you continue to cover on Seeking Delphi that you think would be of interest to the listeners? Well, it's of interest very much to me, and I think should be of interest to the, the listeners. The one that has been, and this is one I've been following, again, not since I was seven or eight years old, but since I was in my 20s when I read a book by a uh, libertarian firebrand by the name of Jerome Tuchili called Here Comes Immortality. That is the whole ending aging space that's out there now, led very much by the likes of Aubrey de Grey and George Church and others. Aubrey, uh, George Church and Aubrey de Grey have both been on 60 Minutes. Aubrey de Grey has been on my podcast numerous times. And what, what once was thought of as, as snake oil and fringe science has gone very much mainstream. Tremendous breakthroughs have gone through, substantial progress in radical extension of life expectancy of some lower life forms from fruit flies up, up through mice. And now George Church is taking it to dogs. But the point is, is that it, it's gone into the mainstream. You now see major advocates at Harvard, at Yale, at Oxford, at uh, just major universities around the world. It's gotten to the point, you know, as Aubrey says, when he started on this 15 years ago, researchers said they were interested in focusing on aging as a disease. It would be a career killer. Now people are, are coming out and venture money is going into it. And people are realizing that we've we've learned a lot about the damages of aging. And Basically, 70 or 80% of our healthcare bill is dealing with what are the diseases, chronic diseases of aging, because they go up exponentially with age. And really, if you look at it, getting older and having the immune system weakening, weaken uh, uh, the brain, lose functionality, whatever, uh, these are, the, these are the, the causes of most of the healthcare issues in society. So I have been very interested in this. Nobody's saying it's an absolute, but there's a really good chance. In fact, there's already some trials and some indication that even some interventions with existing uh, drugs or therapies have a mild effect in, in delaying aging. This is fascinating to me as a futurist because I look at it from, okay, if we increase mean life expectancy at birth in, say, in Western countries from about 80 to 100 uh, between now and the end of the century, that's easily a transition we can deal with. But on the other hand, what happens if by 2040 or so, as uh, the likes of David Wood and Aubrey de Grey said, they feel there's about a 50-50 chance of having a widely available and affordable human rejuvenation therapy that could almost indefinitely extend lifespan, then all of a sudden everything about the human experience changes from human meaning to um, 
you know, to work, to retirement, to relationships, to whatever. And so that, it's a fascinating question. And while the scientists are working hard on that, I've been myself focusing uh, on the social implications in terms of how we get there and what happens if we get there. And in that regard, I'm actually working with a couple of very interesting individuals in, in hopefully in partnership with the SENS Foundation and Aubrey and the Life Extension Advocacy Foundation to create a major public mobilization campaign to kind of create demand for radical life extension and uh, ending aging. Because first of all, the longevity dividend, the savings in cost would be huge and could be applied to solving other problems. And we could get into other problems, but the fact of the matter is this is, uh, this is uh, very important to me. And so we're, we're looking at uh, hopefully producing a, a documentary, a book, social media campaign, even a, even a branding, because there's still a lot of misunderstanding of the longevity movement and also a good bit of what Aubrey de Grey calls the pro-aging trance, where people just say, well, it's normal, it's good, it's always been that way, and we need to do that. But uh, in fact, uh, everything's the way we've been We've done it until it's different. Mankind couldn't fly for the tens of thousands of years since Homo sapiens have been around until they could do it 100 years ago. So that's uh, that's a major interest. And if you follow Seeking Delphi, www.seekingdelphi.com, uh, there are some interesting podcasts about that, along with space commerce, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. The future, post-COVID future of, you know, of economics, of cities, uh, and the like. So uh, it, it is uh, quite varied, and, and there's something there for everybody. I would certainly second that and say that I I was following uh, Seeking Delphi before we started FuturePod. So that was one of the models that I had when we were trying to devise another podcast, I, uh, which is why the FuturePod's gone down a slightly different path, just because I don't need to cover over ground that you're covering. Well, Ed, thank you. And uh, I'd say the same for FuturePod, which really is covering it from another angle that's important. And hopefully by telling the, the story of uh, various futurists, how they think, but also how they got into it, will maybe be encouraging others to, to get into the field or at least to, to think more, more deeply and seriously about the future. Here, here. Okay, Mark. Well, thanks very much for taking some time out to spend some time with the FuturePod community. Peter, thanks so much, and I look forward to, in return, having you on my podcast in the near future. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.